I showed you this uh, video, a testimony as you see, of this young Argentinian Jewish guy who ended up in Israel. Uh, because of the text before us in Romans 11, we've been there for the last few weeks. I promise you, this is the last night uh, that I'm going to deal with this particular Jewish theme, and uh, then we'll do other stuff. Uh, but I can't escape what Paul has to say for us in this text. His argument is this, has God rejected the Jewish people? He says unequivocally, no. And as evidence of it, he points to people like this, who though they are the minority in the Jewish community, uh, the fact being that the majority of Jews do not believe in Jesus, only a remnant, only a small percentage of Jews believe in Jesus. Paul says, nonetheless, that small percentage of believing Jews, which can be identified in every generation, are evidence of the fact that God has not abandoned his covenant people. If he has abandoned them, then we wouldn't have testimonies like this. And so even though the majority view in the Jewish community is not to believe in Jesus, the fact that there are some Jews who believe in Jesus in every generation is a foreshadowing of a future work, so says Paul, that God intends to do amongst the Jewish people. And we'll get a little hint of it in the text before us tonight. It's in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. And I'm going to go through like 10 whole verses in one measly old night. Good night. I'm exhausted already. Romans chapter 11, verse 19, and just to give you a little bit of context, uh, Paul has been addressing his remarks to Gentile believers, and he continues to do so here in verse 19. So when he says you, he's talking about Gentile believers, non-Jews, Gentiles who believe in Jesus. You will say then, branches were broken off. That's a reference to Jews who have rejected Jesus. You will say branches, Jewish unbelievers, were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You know, Paul mentioned something called the olive tree. He spoke about the rich root of the olive tree. That's what he did in prior verses. And he tells us that the root of the olive tree is God's promise through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the root of the olive tree. And Paul says Gentiles, because of Jewish rejection of the gospel, have been given the glorious opportunity of hearing the gospel, accepting it, and being grafted in to the rich root of the olive tree. So Paul says here, you're right, Gentile believers, in saying branches have been broken off, that's true, so that I, a Gentile believer, might be grafted into the root of the olive tree. So Paul says in verse 20, quite right. You're right about that. They, Jewish unbelievers, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. So not by, not by any inherent worth, not by, not by being of more value than Jews, not by earning salvation, not by good deeds or good works. You, anybody, Jew or Gentile, stands in right standing with God, Paul says, by faith. Therefore, he says, do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the natural branches are a reference to Jewish people. It, they're the natural branches in this sense. 
the root of the olive tree is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's covenant with them. Those are Jews. So the natural branches are their Jewish descendants. So Paul says, if God didn't spare them, the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So God is cautioning Gentiles, be cautious about an attitude of arrogance and supremacy with reference to those Jews. Because if God was willing to pluck out Jews, natural branches from the olive tree, because of their self-righteousness and pride and unbelief, how much more will he be willing to do that with reference to you as well. So verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity of God. And this is tough for us, to hold in tension these two attributes of God. We like to think of him as a very kind, beneficent father, and he is. But please don't underestimate the severity of his judgments as well. The two are true of God. So Paul says, behold his kindness and severity to those who fell, Jews, severity. But to you, Gentiles who profess Christ, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Some, in my opinion, mistakenly take that to be support for the notion that you could lose your salvation. That's not what it's saying. When it says, if you continue in his kindness, that is a sign of salvation. So Paul is saying to Gentiles who, who merely profess Christ, if you see an enduring posture of staying in the kindness of God, that's an evidence of your salvation. And that evidence of your salvation indicates you're truly saved. But if you cease to walk in the kindness of God, that's an evidence of the fact that salvation never took root in your life, and you too can experience the severity of God just as the Jews have. And they also, verse 23, if they, that they are Jews, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you, you Gentile believers, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree. Now, these are God's words. He, he's saying Gentiles are likened to a wild olive tree. If you were cut off from a wild olive tree and were grafted, notice this phrase, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, that's the tree with reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you Gentiles, wild olive tree, by faith, were grafted into the natural olive tree, the one that has Jewish roots, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? If Gentiles, likened to a wild olive tree, have by faith been grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those branches originally coming from that olive tree be grafted back in? Folks, uh, for Folks like me and Jewish believers like me, when we come to know Christ, it's really like coming home. I remember when my mother, who is now 98 years old, 98, I remember uh, over 30 years ago when she became a follower of Jesus, she made the statement, where have we been? 
We have been blind. He is our Messiah. She felt like she was coming home, and I felt the same way. And so, so God, by his grace through faith, has grafted unsaved Jews back into the cultivated olive tree, contingent on their faith in him. Now, you see the phrase, all this was done to Gentiles contrary to nature? Now, I'm not a big uh, sort of plant and tree guy because in, you know, in New York, we don't like have any of those so, <laughs> sort of things. I know a lot about concrete and cement, but uh, not trees. But I've, I've read up upon, about this, and apparently what you do, um, you, you don't take a wild branch if you're going to do some grafting of trees. You don't take a, a wild branch and... Uh, uh, and, and, and graft it into a cultivated tree. You do it the opposite way. You take a cultivated branch, graft it onto a wild olive tree, so that in, you do so in the hope that the cultivated branch will subsume the wild olive branches and it will become a better tree. But that's not what happens here. Paul is saying the opposite took place. God took wild olive branches, use guys, uh, and grafted you into a cultivated olive tree. It's not supposed to happen that way. So from a horticultural point of view, it's contrary to nature. And Paul is using that as a metaphor to indicate, don't be arrogant towards the Jews, Gentile believers, because if he took you, a wild olive branch, contrary to nature, grafted you into a cultivated tree, how much more can he regraft cultivated branches back into their own tree? So, yeah, I want to be careful about looking down at Jews. I, mean, I don't think you should look up to Jews, by no means, but I don't think you should look down at them uh, either. You know, I hear just a little too often, those Jews, those stiff-necked Jews, you know, I don't understand why, why they this, why they that, why they... Be, be careful. You stand by faith just as anybody stands by faith, not by, not by merit. And so Paul says this, verse 25, this is key. I don't want you, brethren... So by brethren, he's referring to us, believers. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed. So Paul is saying there's a possibility that his fellow Christians may miss something. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. Now, I need to tell you something. Uh, that word mystery, whenever it's used in the Bible, is entirely different than the same word when we use it. When the word mystery is used in the Bible, it means truths that uh, uh, were not revealed until a certain day. God had these truths in his, in his uh, infinite mind, his plans, but his plans were not entirely revealed until a certain day. When a specific aspect of God's redemptive plan came to be revealed generally, that's called a mystery. What was once an unrevealed truth of God has now been made available widely to anyone who, for instance, reads it in the Bible. So a mystery is a truth of God that at one time was not known, but then later on was revealed. When we use the term mystery today, uh, religiously, it's in the same sense of the mystery religions in Paul's day. In Paul's day, there were the mystery religions. They were secret societies. Uh, you could join, but when you joined, you were told there were certain secrets, mysteries, 
that only esoteric truths out of the reach of most people and only made available to the spiritual elite in that particular mystery religion. By the way, we have some equivalent organizations even today where the new initiate is told to uh, join and even take oaths of secrecy uh, with regard to secrets not yet revealed to them. Secrets only revealed to a, to, to a special few, you see what I mean? That's like the mystery religions of Paul's day. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about truths only available to ordained clergy, only available to Southern Baptists, only available to males. No, 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 no. He's talking about truths now available to everyone. It was a mystery until God revealed these truths to everyone. So as a side note, and I hope I don't, I, I don't get too, too far astray, but just, just a word of caution. I would be cautious about books that have in their title um, the revealed secrets of something to do with our faith or uh, secret mysteries of the, of the Bible, you know, revealed. I would be really careful. The assumption is the author of the book has received insight into a, uh, a mystery that nobody for 2,000 years has seen except that particular author. And, uh, and in order for you to know what he knows, you got to buy, buy the book. Now, i got to tell you something. That's not how the author of the Bible works. I know the last book of the Bible is called the Book of Revelation, but all 66 books are books of revelation. Our Father is a God who reveals things to his children. He doesn't keep them secret. What kind of a God would that be? So, so be careful. There are certain well-known authors. Their books always make the bestseller list, and I don't want to be overly critical, but Christians buy these things like crazy, always looking for some new thing, some mystery, you know, the secret mysteries of the Talit. Someone wrote a book, the Talit is a prayer shawl, you know, all the numbers and the colors and the this and that, the secret to, anyway, there's a new book out, uh, uh, I'm not telling people what to do, what to read, I don't have any authority to do that. Just a recommendation, proceed with caution. If you want to know what God is about, please don't allow yourself to be bored with Scripture. Just read the Bible. In fact, the Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us, not some author belong to us and to our children forever, that we may observe the words of this law. That's plural. When you become a Christian, you get the mind of Christ and his spirit in you. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is to illuminate Scripture. So what has been hidden from view as an unconverted person, now you can see, you could see, you know what John 3.16 means. You could see the place of Jews and Gentiles and all the rest. I'm not spending 15, 20, 25 dollars on a book. You know, in authors, you know what they do? They get a best-selling book about the secrets of this, the mystery of that, and we go out and buy them like crazy, make that guy rich. He writes another book with the same stuff. I know certain authors, every one of their books and sermons has the word secret or mystery in it. 
And we're so desperate. Oh my goodness, I want to be made privy to these things which only the spiritual elite, only the esoterics can know of. Are you kidding me? I have a soon-to-be three-year-old grandson, and he can tell you uh, the story of Jonah. Uh, 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 not word for word, but concept by concept. He can take you through the book of Jonah and the whale and all the rest. He's three years old. Thank God that God doesn't withhold his truths from his sons and daughters of any stripe, of any age, uh, so as to reveal them only to some. Please be careful. It's like the hula hoop craze, for crying out loud. We Christians, I guess, are so desperate for something new, will buy into almost anything. And so we're casting caution to the wind, folks. Be careful. If you want to know what God's about, read the Bible. I mean, why do we call it the Word of God and rush to buy the words of man and read those almost more? Where you know, People come, Stuart, have you read the latest? Have you read? Have you read? You know, could I tell you something? Uh, No, because uh, I'm too fascinated by the contents, in this case, of Romans chapter 11. When I get done milking the treasures of Romans chapter 11, I'm not reading one of your books. I'm going on to Romans chapter 12. So I, I I would just, just be cautious, be cautious, be cautious. So Paul says, look, brethren, I don't want you to be uninformed of the mystery. Well, what's the mystery he's talking about? Look, so that you won't be wise in your own estimation. You may have a translation that says, so you won't be arrogant. That's what he's saying. He's saying, my fellow Christians, I don't want you to miss something. I don't want you to be uninformed about a mystery. Because if you are, you're going to be arrogant. You're going to be wise. You're going to be a wise guy in your own estimation. And here's the mystery. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. That's the mystery. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The hardening God has brought upon Israel because of our rejection of our own Messiah is not put on every Jew. I'm evidence that it's not every Jew. My friend Harry, who I keep embarrassing, <laughs> where is his Harry? There's Harry. Harry is more uh, another evidence of the fact that this hardening on the Jews is partial. In every generation, you saw testimony of another Jewish guy, a young guy. Uh, the only reason I'm showing you that is just to, just to show support for what Paul is saying. God did not totally harden uh, every ethnic Jew only most for their unbelief, but a remnant have remained unhardened and able to behold a risen Savior and believe on him as personal Savior. So Paul says, first of all, it's a partial hardening that's happened to Israel. And then he also says that it is time-bound. It only exists until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? You know, for the last 1,900 years, uh, Jews have sort of been put on the sideline, removed from center stage because of our unbelief and hard-heartedness. And God has put on center stage in their place Gentile believers, the church of Jesus Christ, made up primarily of Gentiles. But that's not going to be the way it is forever. There's going to come a time when God puts the Jews back on center stage. You'll see it in, in just a, a second. So the fullness of the Gentiles, you know, that's called in theological terms the church age. 
We're in the church age. What does that mean? Well, it means since Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, God established his church on earth. It is primarily populated by Gentile believers. Jews who believe are a novelty. We are statistically um, in the minority. And, 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 so, and so the church age is a time when, because my people have rejected the gospel, it has been uh, uh, proclaimed throughout the world, and it is primarily Gentile people who are responding to the gospel. That's the church age. And this says this hardening on Israel is partial, and also it's not going to be forever. It's only going to be until the fullness of the Gentiles. That means when God is finished emphasizing the proclamation of the gospel to primarily Gentile folks, when uh, all those Gentiles who, who believe will be filled up in the family of God, then God will return to focus his attention on the Jews again. I always think this. Whenever a Gentile person accepts the Lord, oh, man, that man or woman may be the last one. <laughs> That's all it takes to give God a full house. You know, God, don't you have enough Gentiles? Come on. You, 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 how many more do you need? Maybe just one more. You, so, uh, you know, you want to go out and share the gospel like crazy with Gentile people. You never know when you're going to see, uh, see, see the last one come to faith. And then when the fullness of the Gentiles comes about, then God advances his plan of redemption, you'll see here, with the Jews. So when the Lord is finished with the church age and has taken the church to heaven, do you believe in the rapture? Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. So there you go. We have something in common. So I believe the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation period. And some of you may not. It's okay. We could still be friends. I have friends who are dead wrong. But anyway, <laughs> it's a free country. So, so, uh, so at the rapture, that ends the church age. The church, made up of primarily Gentiles and a few Jews, statistically speaking, is raptured. That ends the church age. And then during a horrific period on earth called the tribulation period, that's when God will continue his focus of attention on the Jews. So the hardening of Jews is both partial and it is limited in time. And so it says in verse 26, and then all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So what does it mean? All Israel will be saved. Well, I'll tell you something it means. It means God cannot possibly be through with the Jews. I mean, that's a future thing. And then all Israel will be saved. They're not saved now. The majority perspective amongst Jews is to reject Christ, not accept Christ. This is talking of a day when all Jews will be saved. Well, we've not seen that. That's not happened yet. That's future. That tells me God has a future plan for Israel, for Jews. So that flies in the face of what I mentioned to you is called replacement theology. And you would not believe how it's picking up steam like crazy. Replacement theology says because of the hard-heartedness of the Jews, they've been rejected and replaced by God with the church. So the church is now spiritual Israel. God no longer has a plan for the Jews. All that which God promised the Jews, he has not fulfilled it because they have forfeited it. But 
But Gentiles who make up the church, they're going to inherit all of these promises. It's called replacement theology. It's very, very dangerous because it denigrates the character of God. It means he can't keep his word. He can't fulfill his promises. That's what it means. It means what he says he will not do. It's the character of God which is at stake. And, 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 and so this passage is talking about the time when all Israel will be saved. What does it mean? Does it mean every individual Jew who has ever lived will one day automatically be saved? No, it does not mean that at all. You know how Jews are saved? The same way Gentiles are saved. <laughs> it's the same way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men, Jewish men, Gentile men, by which we must be saved. There's only one way to be saved, and that is through the death, burial, crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so this phrase, and then all Israel will be saved, cannot possibly mean that uh, Jews are saved just because they're Jews. No way. What then does it mean? It means after this terrible time known as the Great Tribulation period. Some people reject that because they say, oh, you know, there's, there's always been tribulation. Of course. But the Great Tribulation is a specific time lasting seven years, the last half of which in particular is a time of the outpouring of God's wrath on a godless, Satan-led world. We won't be here. Well, why? Because the wrath of God has already been fully poured out on our behalf on his own son. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the wrath of the Father. Do you and me, which has been placed on the shoulders of his only begotten and beloved son. The Father's wrath has been satisfied through the death and burial and Resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the great tribulation is characterized primarily by the outpouring of God's wrath. Therefore, we won't be here. The father is not wrathful towards his kids. Are you wrathful towards yours? Well, good night. Give God some credit. He's cast all our sins behind his back. You know what Jesus said? It is finished. Paid in full. He canceled the debt. The father doesn't hold our sin against us anymore. It's back here behind our back. He's not going to go back there to get it. He doesn't want us to get it either. Sin no longer separates us because Jesus stretched out his nail-pierced hands on the cross and in a sense grabbed onto our hand and joined it into the Father's hand. There's no obstruction anymore. We're not adversaries of the Father. Good night. We're children of the great King. We're sons and daughters for crying out loud. So the great tribulation is a time when God pours out his wrath on a sin-sick world in rebellion against him. And during that time, tons of Jews will die. The Great Tribulation, it's called from the Old Testament point of view, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's what it's called. And during that time, Satan and his evil minions, you know, Antichrist and the beast and dragon, all these metaphors for the unholy trinity, he will pour out his wrath in particular upon Jews. Why? If he can wipe out Jews, he can make God to be a liar. 
he could say, you should not put your faith in him. He said he will never forsake the Jews. They will always be the apple of his eye and all the rest. And where are they now? They're all destroyed. So he will target Jews. And the persecution against Jews during the great tribulation period will make this is not easy to say, but I think it's true. It will make the Holocaust look like a walk in the park. Approximately two-thirds of Jews alive during the tribulation period will perish. Will perish. And what happens to the others? At the end of the tribulation, cut short by the return of the Lord Jesus. Every Jew who has survived the tribulation will look upon him whom they have pierced. Bow before him, confess him as Lord and Savior, and everyone will be saved. So this phrase, every Jew will be saved, is a reference to every Jew who survives the tribulation. Everyone will look upon Jesus, upon his return. And that's why it says, the deliverer will come from Zion. That's Jerusalem. Uh, Paul is borrowing from Isaiah 59, 20 and applying it to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes, he sits down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. That's Zion. This text says at the end of the tribulation period, uh, we will see the deliverer coming from Zion and he will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. There's plenty of ungodliness in the Jewish community. The deliverer who comes from Zion will remove it by grace, just as he has done that marvelous work of grace in our lives as well. So this is a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Look, here's my point. How could all this be said in the Bible and people still hold to replacement theology? How could it be said that God has this future plan at the end of the tribulation to return as a deliverer from Zion of all places? Not Rome, not Mecca, not Austin, from Zion, from Jerusalem. And he will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. That's a reference to Israel to Jews. How could all that be true when people still say God's through with those Jews? He has rejected and replaced them. Now, I know for some of you, you think I'm overdoing this because this has not become an issue to you. And all I have to say is, great. I don't want to stir up things that are not there. That's really fine. But I think you're going to see increasingly in one form or another that this is becoming an issue. Even from a political point of view, look, if God has rejected the Jews, if they have forfeited all his promises, then that has great impact on the conflict in the Middle East. If the Jews do not have a divine right to the land, if they have forfeited it, for instance, through their disobedience, then God could very well have given it to the Palestinians or any other group. Therefore, uh, for evangelicals to continue to stand by Israel and defend their right to the land is absolutely a misdirected thing if God has replaced the Jews. So you're going to see even in the political, well, it's already happening for crying out loud. People and theologians, and I'm, I'm trying to be a good boy tonight, so I'm not mentioning any names whatsoever. Um, Unless you just want me to. 
No, 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 I'm not going to do that. That's not the point. But there are known theologians. If I, may, if I mention their names, you would know them. Good godly men. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Who have bought into this replacement theology for crying out loud. And so now, because of, because of interest in the welfare of Muslims and Palestinians, and we ought to be interested in the well-being and salvation of all people, but because of that, they're saying, yeah, it's those Jews for crying out loud, entrusted with so much, squandering spiritual privilege. God had enough with them. He dumped them. Israel is the land of all people for crying out loud. It's not the Jew. Nation. But by the way, interesting, they don't complain about the 50 plus, 50 plus Muslim dominated nations actually declared Islamic states. But they do complain about the claim that there is one measly old Jewish state the size of New Jersey. <laughs> It's just uh, sort of an imbalance kind of a thing. Anyway, so be careful of replacement theology. Why is it not true? Well, look, verse 27. This is my covenant with them. The them are Jews. This is my covenant with them. Look what it says. When I take away their sins. It doesn't say if. When I take away their sins. That tells me God has a future for Israel. Replacement theologians say God has no future for Israel. What are you talking about? This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it says in verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. What does that mean? Well, try, generally speaking, sharing the gospel with Jewish people. Uh, in, in many cases, you, you won't get a good response. <laughs> It'll, it'll be, it might even be an angry response. They might be upset with you. So from the standpoint of the gospel, yeah, they're, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. For what reason? Look what it says. For the sake of the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Because of God's eternal covenant. Through the line of Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. For their sake, it says, God has not forsaken the Jews. They are God's choice, beloved, for the sake of the fathers. Why? Last verse. For the gifts, verse 29, and calling of God are irrevocable. Gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You know what we like to do? We like to take that verse out of its context and apply it to our spiritual gifts. It sort of could apply, but before you make application from Scripture, you can't jump over its primary application. The primary application of verse 29 is that God's gifts to Israel and his calling of Israel, that's what's not revocable. The gifts and what gifts to Israel? Are you kidding? Prophets? The Bible, the temple, the holidays, the Messiah, all these gifts, the gifts and calling. Did God not call Israel from amongst the nations? He certainly has, not because of any inherent merit, just because of his sovereign choice. I know we don't like the word, some of us, election, but he sovereignly elected not individual Jews, but Israel on a national level to reveal his grace and glory. So, so this says the gifts of God to Jews, the calling of God of the Jews, are 
irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God cannot be revoked. So as soon as someone says God is through with the Jews, you got to know that person is standing in direct violation of what Scripture says. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Why are Jews alive today? Because of what Malachi so well said. God doesn't change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The only reason why we're still around today is that God keeps his word. I mean, what happened to the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian and the Median Empire? What happened in our day? What happened to the Third Reich? You talk about a powerful war machine. Uh, Nazi Germany. I mean, what, what happened to Stalin for crying out loud? I mean, what, what? These people have come and gone, but little old measly old Jews are still here today. How does that happen? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The reason why we're still around is because God doesn't change. Now, what does all this have to do by the way, I'm going to be finished with the Jewish stuff tonight, I promise you. Then we'll get to, we'll get to more general stuff <laughs> next week, Lord willing. Um, but I'll tell you what the application is to, to Gentile believers and to all of us. If you track God's interaction with Jews, you will learn two things that are necessary. You will learn about human nature, and you will learn about God's nature. Here's what you learn about human nature by checking out God's interaction with the Jews. Human nature, even under the best of circumstances, will rebel against their creator. So you can't claim I grew up in a poor educational district, a deprived environment, a single-parent home, whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter. God bestowed upon Jews spiritual riches, treasures, and prosperity, the likes of which no other people group has ever seen. And what have we done? We have revealed our true colors. We have gone our own way. We've done our own thing. We have told God, thank you, but no thank you. We would rather be masters of our own destiny. We've rejected his grace in favor of our own self-righteousness. So when you check out Jews in the Bible, you find out, even under the best of circumstances, we will reveal our true colors. Human nature, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the second thing you find out when you check out the way God deals with the Jews, you find out about his nature. What do we find out about his nature? He keeps his word. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The manifold promises of God to Israel throughout the scriptures have not yet been fulfilled. It takes the millennial reign of Christ for all that to happen, for crying out loud. And what's the point? Again, is it because Jews are special? Absolutely not. Worth more? Absolutely not. God, for whatever reason, simply chose that particular people group through whom to manifest his glory and grace. If you ever doubt, here's the point, if you ever doubt the grace of God, please take note of his response to my people. 
the most, un, in my opinion, the most undeserving people on earth, my people. And look at the grace of God to hold out his hand of mercy to us every day, beseeching us to come to him through the Son and be saved. If God has assumed that posture with reference to stiff-necked Jews, then you qualify for the grace and mercy of God as well. And if God insists on keeping his promises to undeserving Jews, you can count on him fulfilling his promise to you as well. He who has the Son, he who believes in Jesus, has the life, eternal life. He who does not have the Son shall not see that kind of life, but the wrath of God abides on him. How do you know God's going to keep his word of, uh, of fulfilling his promise to you of eternal life? Look how God has remained faithful to faithless, unfaithful Jews. In fact, the New Testament says, though we be unfaithful, he remains what? And if you ever doubt that, here's the evidence. Jews still alive today, a smattering being saved, and one day, many more, one day all Israel will be saved. The assurance of our salvation can be found by checking out God's transaction with the Jews. So, th so the relevance of this is, again, twofold. The Jews reveal human nature, and God's response to the Jews reveal his divine, holy, yet gracious, merciful, and forgiving nature. Listen, I must tell you, all this is probably a little too much for some, maybe even irrelevant, but here's the relevant point. Uh, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really wishes to be each of, uh, 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 the God of each of us. Did you know that? As individuals. Uh, as he was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so he, he desires to be with you. You could fill your name in the blank. And there's something about God. This is one of the things I don't understand. He simply won't impose himself upon us. I wish he would. I wish he would just grab onto us and make us be his. Make us believe. But, but, but he's not like that. He's a God who, who woos us with his love, not with his raw, unbridled power. I pray, even tonight, those of you who have not yet accepted Christ would be affected by his love for you as evidence through Jews. And I pray that tonight you would say, oh God, I get it for the first time. You so loved me that you sacrificed yourself for me. But that didn't end the story. You rose up from death. Therefore, I speak to you alive from the last enemy, death. Would you come into my life? Would you do for me what you've done for countless others? Upon my invitation, oh God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Would you come into my life? Change me from the inside out. Just as you promised to do for Israel, do for me. Deliver me from all ungodliness. In other words, Lord Jesus, would you please save me personally? And would you please have mastery in my life? Be my Lord and Savior. If you pray something like that, the words have no magic. It's the sentiment behind the words. If they are a reflection of your heart, my heavens. 
God has in store for you not only the forgiveness of sin, but an abundant life here and eternal life to come. And you can count on him fulfilling it because he's demonstrated his faithfulness through faithless Israel. I pray you would take Jesus as your Savior tonight. Lord Jesus, that's our prayer. And when we pray it, we know perhaps more than anything else we could ask for, that one is consistent with what's on your heart. For you desire for none to perish, but for all to be saved. You're the one who saves, the Savior. No, God, we thank you. And regardless of what Jews think, and regardless of what Gentiles think, and regardless of traditions and religions and misconceptions and all kinds of stuff going on, and regardless of our understanding and regardless of the fact that we cannot fully comprehend your ways, no matter what, you would still be God. And oh God, you're the God with whom we must make do. I pray even tonight, Lord Jesus, there would be the one, the two, the 15, the 20 who would humble themselves and say, forgive me, Lord Jesus, a sinner. Make me the person you want me to be. And oh God, we know regardless of our response to you, you would still be God. <laughs>